Welcome to the Inquisitive Tourist. My name is Nate Ralph and thank you for joining me. Every time you travel, are you ever in awe at the plane you're sitting on? As you walk up to the aircraft, are you mesmerised at the gigantic flying machine you see in front of you? Even if you're a nervous flyer, you're likely confident that it will fly you thousands of miles without stopping safely to your destination. Or what gives you that confidence? If you're anything like me, you've probably wondered about aircraft maintenance, how and when it's done, and what exactly is involved. Well, my guest today is an aircraft maintenance technician, also known as an airframe and power plant mechanic. He was born in the Dominican Republic, but recently relocated from Florida to Maryland, USA. His name is Jeffrey Linares, and he's 36 years old. Jeffrey, welcome to the show. Oh, hey, Nate. Thanks for having me here. I'm excited to go about this opportunity. It's not very often we one gets interviewed in this manner, so I'm really looking forward to it. Absolutely. And on that note, I'd really like to thank you because it, it really is a, an area of, of expertise that so many people use on a, a daily or weekly, monthly basis when they travel, taking it for granted. Uh, but I think a lot of people are very uh, inquisitive, wanting to know more about how it all works. But before we get all uh, into that uh, technicality, uh, Jeffrey, First of all, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe uh, a bit about your background, where you were born and raised, and uh, how long you lived in Florida, and also why you relocated to Maryland, USA? Sure thing, yes. Uh, I was born in Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic, and came to the United States when I was uh, six years old, and lived in Maryland, actually, for about 22 and a half years before I moved on my own to uh, Tampa, Florida. And I lived there for about five years. And in September of 2019, I came back up to to Maryland to kind of restructure myself, you know, in certain areas, in different areas. So because of uh, certain hardships, but everything's a lot better now. That's, that's good to know. That's good to know, Jeffrey. And uh, it's nice to, to, to hear people with different backgrounds. And it's very cool that you were uh, born in Santo Domingo. I've mentioned on previous episodes, I've, I've been there myself, uh, a place called Zona Colonial, which I'm absolutely oh, in yeah. love with. Were you born near there? Uh, no, I was actually born in, I, I don't, I'm don't. i not actually sure the name of the hospital, but it wasn't uh, near that area. That's more of the high scale, you know, upscale area where uh, everybody goes to kind of lounge and, you know, it's touristy. We were born more into like the I was born more in like the city, you know, the in a downtown. mean streets, as they call them. Right, right, awesome. Yeah. So, getting to the uh, to the topic of what you do for work, could I ask you what your full job title is um, and how long it's been that you've actually been working in that official capacity? Oh yes, uh, the full job title is in the United States. It's aircraft maintenance technician. And I've been licensed since August of 2006 and working in that capacity uh, since that time. Wow. So that's 15 years, right? Almost. Yeah, almost. Wow. Just about. So, yeah, I mean, usually after that amount of time, uh, someone really knows that, you know, the, at the back of their hand, so to speak, or like the back of their hand, their, their profession. Um, that's very, very impressive. And I suppose you're one of the more senior ones now. Yes. Um, career-wise, yes. I I have more seniority, but you know, that whole seniority thing kind of, it varies wherever you go. If you go somewhere else to a different company or whatever, you're at the bottom of the barrel until you move up, you know. That's interesting. So does that mean that even if you moved company now, uh, let's say next week, even with your 15 years of experience, you'd still have to start off near the bottom of the barrel and quickly work your way up. Is that right? Mm, yes, because uh, yeah, I haven't been at that uh, a specific company for 15 years, so I'd be starting over. Wow. Wow. Even with all the knowledge you have. So on that note, it segues quite nicely. Could I ask you what company you actually work for now? 
Yes, the company I work for now is called F&E Aircraft Maintenance and Engineering. It's uh, we call it FEM. Okay. And yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Good company to work for. Actually, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, my experience has been good with the the company itself. You know, my superiors they kind of I've noticed they they tend to look out for for us for for their subordinates. You know, our regional manager and my station manager, they kind of, you know, try to look out for the, for, for their workers. That's nice. It's always good when companies have that ethos. Now, getting into the, the technical stuff, I'm, I'm sitting here so excited to get onto the, the technicalities <laughs> of, of what you do. Um, do you work, let's start with a simple question. Do you work on both Boeing and Airbus aircraft? Yes, I have worked on both. Uh, currently, I'm working on Boeing aircraft, but most of my career has been with Airbus. My experience has been with uh, Airbus. Interesting, because I know most of us, uh, you know, everyday travelers, chances are we've probably been on both. Um, I think the very common ones are, you know, like a Boeing 737, Airbus A319, A320, and so on. But you personally, um, do you have a preference? I mean, for example, are both as safe? Are both as easy to maintain and fix? Well, as far as safety goes, like all aircraft, in generally speaking, are pretty safe because, you know, at the it's pretty high stakes, you know, at the manufacturers. But I found that some are a lot easier to work on than others. You know, some have more, uh, are more maintenance friendly. And uh, in, for my preference, I always prefer to work on the Airbuses. That's interesting. I mean, why is that? Well, why, why specifically do you enjoy more the, the Airbuses? Oh, because they, they just make it so much easier, you know. And every aircraft, you know, has something that kind of like irritates you about it or stuff that you're working on. You're like, why did they do this like that? <laughs> but I found that on Airbus... <laughs> It, it makes it so much easier, for example, like troubleshooting and fault isolation and just it, it, the airplane tells you what's wrong with it itself. You can go into the cockpit, go through the computer and it'll and you can run tests and the aircraft will pretty much say, OK, here's the problem. Here's what you can do to fix this or here's where you can go to find out uh, how to fix it. And you, you just follow whatever the aircraft tells you and nine times out of 10 you'll you'll hit with the problem and be able to fix it uh, fairly quickly okay that's interesting i guess that kind of leads on to the next question which you've partially answered already but in general terms um are both as reliable uh or, or do you find one model always seeming to need a, that little bit more attention than the other well, uh, as far as between, yeah, you mentioned the uh, Airbus A320 family and the Boeing 737 line. Exactly. I've, I know that they're both like the workhorses of the regional and, you know, sometimes just international uh, travel. But uh, the th- to the 37's credit, it ever rarely has to, after it pushes off the gate, it rarely ever has to come back. If you see wow. the 37 come came back to the gate it's because hey something went wrong like wow but you know uh it 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 is a it's built like a tank awesome and uh yeah so it it is a very reliable aircraft but um but as far as preference and what i've noticed about design and construction of the airframes i noticed that the airbus tends to is a has a little more space and i find it to be a little more comfortable okay you know when you're flying as a passenger mm-hmm. and you know also it's very reliable maintenance wise if it comes back to the gate use a lot of times you can just reset the system pull the circuit breaker mm-hmm. and wait for the fault to go away after you you reset it and you're good to go interesting do you think that the actual um, integrity of the airframe itself, because you, you said that the B, uh, the Boeing 737 was built like a tank, uh, to use your words, does that mean that the actual integrity of the airframe is in some way superior to the Airbus A320 or uh, not necessarily? 
Uh, not necessarily. It's uh, built like a tank. I, I think I referred to more of how long it's been in service and how just how reliable it is. It's been in service longer than the 320 family, but uh, I don't know, the 320 family has been around, it's only by a difference of about 20 years and they're still uh, out there uh, flying strong. Yeah, yeah. And I think both, I actually looked it up uh, before our interview, I think both have a, a range of approximately five and a half thousand kilometers, which is around 3,400 miles. So being the workhorse for, you know, internal flights, flights under six hours, they, they're probably the most prominent uh, planes in our skies globally, aren't they? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. Uh, You're either, if you're flying, uh, for example, within the United States, let's say New York to LA, Mm -hmm. you're either flying in a 737 or uh, Airbus 3. 320 19 or 21 yeah so they, they really do get uh, good use don't they i'd like oh, to yeah. i'd like to to go on to another thing uh, jeffrey uh, uh, quite a specific question how many hours if i can put it down to man hours uh, if, if there is such a thing or years of experience were needed uh, before you were actually allowed to work on real aircraft that we that were going to be flown very soon after i mean what is the highest qualification that you had to obtain well the schooling for it is actually relatively short. Uh, well, if you go to a vocational school specialized or uh, focused mainly on on that uh, area, that career path. So it, my schooling took me a year and a half going all year round. All, all the only breaks we got were, you know, the holidays, the regular federal holidays. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, requires around 2,160 hours of uh, training, you Oof. know, uh, classroom and wow. uh, practical yeah, time to before you can go in, and get uh, tested to receive your license. And when and you then, said... Uh, um, no, sorry to interrupt. When you mentioned the license, is that what your is that your highest qualification, and, and what's the name of it? Yeah, uh, the training. It, your schooling pretty much prepares you to go take the um, FAA exams, which are it. It comes in three levels. You have your uh, general airframe and power plant written exams. There are three different exams, and uh, you take them on a computer, you know, and then you have your oral and practical on, on all three sections. And a lot of instructors, a lot of examiners, what they do is they will, as you're doing a project on, on that area, you know, general airframe or practice or power plant, you're doing a project, they'll ask you questions and that, you know, about what you're doing. So they cover each section uh, with an oral exam and a, uh, aptitude uh exam uh, with you doing fit doing the work uh physically and yeah that's once you get qualified you can you get signed off and you get your uh you're able to get your license and in terms of the the practical part of that qualification uh jeffrey do they just kind of give you some kind of uh issue that happens in the plane and, and basically hey you've got x amount of time to solve it is that what happens uh no, my experience was, you know, they have projects prepared already because they can't really give you a specific problem for a specific aircraft because, you know, you're going to face different things depending on what you're working on. Mm-hmm. But they would prepare specific projects, you know, for each of the sections, like in general, if you have like, a, let's say, safety wiring or fasteners or whatever you have a, a project designed for that and you'll do it, you know, and as they ask you questions, you kind of, you answer them and, and they'll, if you don't get the answer right, right away, if it's a good examiner, he'll kind of ask you more questions to kind of guide you and lead you into the, the, the correct uh, answer. And then uh, one or two questions uh, and you'll kind of realize like, Oh yeah, you'll remember and give them the right answer. So it's kind of like a, it's a, it's a general overall 
um, exam. Awesome. Which, which is a, you know, <laughs> kind of gives confidence to the, uh, to the average passenger that you guys are primed, so to speak, to, to fix many problems. It's not just, you know, Hey, because a lot of the examinations today and other subjects can, can sometimes be quite focused on particular topics and you can almost predict what might come in the exam. Uh, I'm, I'm not talking right. about anything specific, but, uh, or any country or any examination system, but between certain areas, it can, or certain subjects, I should say, it can sometimes, uh, be that way. If you speak to certain teachers, um, depending on the subject that they, that they do. But if there's someone listening to this podcast, maybe a young guy, it could, it could be a young lady as well. And they're, they're thinking about their career. Maybe they, they really, really want to train up, uh, and get into, to, to aircraft maintenance. What advice uh, would you have for them, Jeffrey? Um, <clears throat> to really do the research, you know, uh, if you're looking, if you're serious about it, make sure that it's really what you want to do. Because uh, in during my time in school, I had, there's a lot of people who started out and uh, only about half or maybe less actually finished the whole program. In my group, there was like 10 of us that started at the same time. And I think only about maybe four or five of us actually went through the whole program and graduated. A lot of people drop out because different reasons. Sometimes they, they just find out that, Hey, you know, I'm not really interested in this. And, but to, to do that, it's uh it's a really big uh, investment and expenditure to, to go through that uh, training only to find out, Hey, you know, I don't really want to do this halfway through, you know, of course, of course. Um, getting on, on that point, actually, do you, do you remember approximately how much the course costs to, to train up? Yeah, my course, well, when I went in, I think it was about $30,000. Okay. Uh, including that's all the books and uh, the classroom time and, and all that, but then the testing is separate. Okay. So 30,000 us dollars, but. Bear in mind that was what fifteen years ago. So adjusting for inflation and, and the like, that pff, potentially could be forty five, fifty thousand by now. Um, okay, yeah. But it, it, you know, I mean, compared to, for example, being a pilot, it's uh, a drop in the ocean, isn't it? I guess. Yeah. Oh, well, the, the pilot programs. I've seen some uh, that some uh, um, aircraft, uh, like transport pilot schools they run you through a whole curriculum. I think it's about four years, two or four years. Goodness me. And it comes out to be around $51,000, uh, $60,000. Okay. Or you have, yeah, you have more uh, recognized schools like Embry-Riddle down in Florida that it's, it's like hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. That's the yeah, kind of so thing that you need to uh, have a family or someone behind you, you know, sponsoring you and so on. <laughs> But um, yeah, again, so, uh, so all right. So let's say you're a young person uh, and you're thinking uh, about getting into this uh, this professional. Maybe you're you know you're a little bit older and you're thinking about retraining. Maybe people are interested in in the social aspects or the social dynamics of the job. Uh, maybe we could perhaps call it the shop culture, so to speak. So if I could ask you, I mean, what different ca- characters do you come across in this job? Because I I haven't got a clue. I mean, obviously, I know you, but I don't really know any other aircraft maintenance engineers. And, you know, if there's an attitude that one would need to avoid when working together in such an important role, is there one? You know, are there any uh, different norms or unwritten rules, so to speak, depending on the company that you work for? Yeah, uh, well, let's let's go uh, one by one here. (laughs) So, like, the different characters you meet on the job, man, I've met so many let's say interesting people well, in my career, you know, I've gotten to work with people from all over the world. You know, I worked with people from Sudan and places from the middle East, like Pakistan and uh, Afghanistan. And like, you learn a lot about different pe- about different cultures mm. uh, through this thing. And you can get to meet a lot of uh, interesting people. And sometimes people who, you found it difficult to work with at first. Then you guys just, once you like accept that, okay, 
that's just the way it is for them, or this is just the way they do it of where they're from, then it makes it so much easier to, to, to work together and you have a, a better time kind of understanding each other. And it makes, it makes it a lot more, a more pleasant work environment. And there's been people that you meet that, you know, you're from, you grew up in the same kind of culture, so to speak, but they are just completely toxic people or, Mm. or yeah. And they kind of, some people try to make your job or your life impossible, you know, just because, you know, they're insecure when themselves, you know, Wow, so, and, so that can uh, even happen in, in, in a role such as, you know, such an important role as, as the one that you do. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of petty people out there. Wow. That they'll try to just, I don't know, just for personal gain or working the system. Mm. But that kind of attitude really gets you, can get you in, in a lot of trouble, mm. you know, socially and legally. Right, right. It's a shame in a way because obviously it is such an important role that you guys do. And I would have thought that it's important to really work together. I mean, after all, you know, you guys are essentially fixing up the planes that the general public are flying on. And, you know, it's a hugely important task because if something is missed or there's a miscommunication or there's personal differences, if if those things are allowed to get into the way, um, it could potentially, you know, affect the, uh, the, the safety of the passengers. Uh, yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's a big risk, you know, when you have, the thing is you have people, uh, with different backgrounds trying to work together for a common goal, but you know, things like pride or no, I don't like the way he told me this, or, you know, people who just don't know how to deal with other people when they get involved, then, you know, it kind of makes the job a little harder. So that's why, you know, if you're going to be in this field, you got to have, you got to kind of have tough skin mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and just kind of just be cool about, you know, be cool about it. Just <laughs> uh, be calm and just, you know, try to get along with you know, your, your coworkers because, you know, at the end of the day, uh, it's your license that's on the line. It's your, it's your signature you're putting down. So, course yeah if yeah if you're getting uh uh involved with somebody over some petty differences it's best to let that go it's good that you mentioned that as well because uh obviously if there is you know someone listening who who wants to potentially get into it to know that uh you know you can still get these social dynamics coming into play even in a a job like that because again i i would i'm quite surprised to, to hear this because i i would have thought that the kind of people that go into this are really passionate about aviation and you know they they wouldn't necessarily allow these these so-called petty differences to to get in the way but you know you've educated us on that so the company that you specifically work for um i believe that they uh own a contract who service the fleet owned by amazon you know obviously one of the biggest companies in the world now they fly correct me if i'm wrong the boeing 767 which is the big plane now, on that yes. specifically, how, how do you find servicing those planes? Because I've heard they're quite difficult. Well, uh, transitioning from, uh, you know, the Airbus, the 320 family, where everything is, well, actually, uh, all Airbuses make it easy for you to, to work on them. <laughs> There's stuff you won't like, but, you know, it's just the way it's designed, mm-hmm. whatever. So going from that, an airplane that's so easy to work on to an older airplane that's still even the upgraded uh, models still use antiquated technology. It's kind of like going to me. I find it, it's like working on an old beat up Ford or an old beat up Chevy, you know, it's just going to be giving you problems no matter what (laughs) you can fix it and fix it. But a lot of times uh, the trouble, like the faults or problems, they'll, they'll be recurring until you do uh, uh, like a big fix, you know. Mm, mm. That's a hilarious illustration that you gave comparing it comparing <laughs> it to the, to the Chevy and so on. But why is that? I mean, why is the 767 
so different in that respect to say the 737 because it's the same company. Right. Well, I mean, the 37 is also the thing is that these airplanes, the, they have a lot of mechanical uh, inputs, you know, instead of uh, where the Airbus is more of a digital airplane, you know, the Boeing tends to have more choose for more um, a less automated machine. Mm-hmm. You know, they still have all the computers and everything, you know, but uh, as far as working on them goes, there's a lot of mechanical uh, inputs. They still use uh, cables for their uh, flight controls and everything. Whereas other companies would go for a more automated system with the fly by wire, you know, where it's transducers and hydraulic uh, actuators mm. instead of cables, which they save on, which is a more efficient way to fly, a more efficient way to design an airplane. Mm. But these airplanes are so old that that's all they have. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I mean, do you think in the next few years then, uh, or maybe 10, 15 years, at some point, all of these uh, more mechanical-based mechanical, uh, me- mechanical based aircraft, such as the 767, do you think they'll end up just petering out and, and we'll basically be left with the, the more automated ones? Well, the I've noticed that there's been a big transition where a lot of these older airplanes are being phased out. And, you know, you have more a newer... Uh, Boeing's like the 787, the 777, uh, the four, the 747-8. So the newer models that are coming in and they're a lot more technologically advanced and they're kind of phasing out all these older airplanes. And the older airplanes are being used more for cargo, uh, right. to, to fly cargo uh, for as freighters. Right, right. Understand. So getting back now a bit more to the, the 737 and the A320, you know, the real workhorses, as, as we were saying, of, of the aircraft, uh, sorry, of the aviation world. Could you speak us through uh, what is involved in essentially a basic routine maintenance check? Well, uh, for, let's say, the 320, uh, routine uh, daily check is what some call it, uh, is the one you get, it gets done every, it, once you do it, it, uh, that sign off, that release is good for 48 hours. Okay. So, you know, you service engines uh, with the oils, you check for the, the filters, make sure that they're not clogged or anything. They have, uh, these differential pressure indicators. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, it's what they called where if the filter gets clogged or whatever, the, the little thing, the indicator will pop out. And if you see that, that it's out, then you have to uh, either reset it and see if it'll pop again, because sometimes they just, a small obstruction will set them off wow. and the line could still be clear. Just on that uh, on that point, how, how would you actually reset one of those differential uh, pressure indicators? Is it complex? No, no, you just push it back in. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, but the thing, but if it's if there's a true clog, then it'll pop out immediately, almost as soon as you run the system. Mm. So you know you got to either change a filter or something. You know, it's it, it depending on what system. It could be complicated or it could be uh, pretty easy. Um. You know, you check tires, brakes, free check for leaks, uh, make sure there's no dents or any damage on the airframe itself or the wings. Uh, make sure that all the uh, probes and sensors are are working uh, are working correctly. That when that the heaters for these probes are working, uh, functioning correctly. Uh, and you do a general overview of the system um, mechanically or electronically, you know, in the, and, you know, check lights and just a general overview of the whole condition of the aircraft at that moment. Okay. Yeah. Now that's quite a comprehensive uh, evaluation that you've given there. You were talking about dents on the actual airframe itself and on the wings. Right. So does that mm-hmm. come down to sort of like a, a basic visual inspection? And And if so, 
how long does that actually take? So not the the main the sort of the routine maintenance check that you've just spoken us uh, through, but just that actual you know to visually inspect an aircraft. Let's just say an A three twenty or or seven three seven. How how long would that take? Uh, usually it takes like a if you're doing like a thorough visual inspection, like even if it's a general visual inspection, but you're being very thorough, it could take maybe 15, 20 minutes. Okay. But usually when the plane comes into the gate and you're doing your walk, every flight you do a walk around, you know, so you walk around the aircraft looking for these, for these things. And if, if the airplane comes in, you know, clean, then that could take maybe 10 minutes uh, you just look in, you know, general, giving it a good overview and making sure that there's nothing like blatantly obviously like, wrong, you know, like a bird strike or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Bird strikes are also a thing. <laughs> right. Right. How, yeah. how long does the basic visual inspection uh, take as compared, you know, on one of these A320s, for example, compared to say the 767, which you compared to as a Chevy? <laughs> Uh, the, it, not that much longer because uh, yes, it's a bigger airframe, but it's also, you're looking for the same things. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. So you're not gonna, you're not looking for a pot of gold or anything. You're just making sure that the thing is, is, is in good condition, you know, yeah. when it comes in. Yeah. So it's not that much longer, maybe a few minutes longer. Yeah. You know, just doing the general walk around yeah it's not like multiplied in order of scale or anything like that what what amazes me though which is one of the reasons you know i I wanted you on the show as well is that with an aircraft it's such a a complicated machine you know there are goodness knows how many moving parts and so on that there seems to be an almost infinity of things that can go wrong Uh, for example just one thing that one story that i know about is in 2009 there was the Air France uh, Hill de Janeiro to Paris uh, flight that crashed in the ocean because I think it's pitot tubes iced over. And something that small led to, to wrong airspeeds being given, which obviously confused the pilots, and, and it crashed and hundreds of people died. So as an aircraft maintenance engineer, how do you learn from incidents or specific incidents like that one and prevent similar things from happening in the future? Yeah, I remember that incident actually. I was uh, I was working when I found out about it. I was like surprised because uh, I heard what, according to the uh, official black box recording, what happened was they they were going headed into a hurricane, and instead of flying under it, you know, the they tried to go over the storm. Mm. And when they went over the storm, that's when they, or yeah, instead of flying under it or going around, they try to go over. And when they did that, it uh, created a more dangerous situation. I heard that the uh, airplane was completely vertical. Goodness me. Uh, yeah. When, when uh, it stalled out and crashed. Yeah. So something like that for a pitot tube to be iced over, for all the pitot tubes to be iced over. Mm. It it takes a lot of things going wrong there uh, mechanically and electrically because all these systems, they have uh, heaters, right? And you have redundant systems. Right. So you don't have just one pedo probe. You have one for the pilot, one for the uh, first officer, and then you have the backup for the pilot and the backup for the first officer. Mm. And then you have your static air um indicators and same thing standby uh alternate for both pilot main main standby and alternate for both the pilot and the first officer so yeah we can learn a lot from these things sometimes uh pilot error can be a a factor where they they will retrain pilots differently mm-hmm. you know in the future to prevent these things from happening and also uh they will add uh, additional uh checks or additional procedures for maintenance to follow to ensure that things are 
are working properly mm-hmm. and uh, they, they'll set up uh, inspection intervals and things like that to, to make sure that everything is being uh, covered you know, sure. to prevent such a thing from happening again. Yeah. It, you mentioned all of those pito tubes um, and hopefully I'm not putting you on the spot here. It might be quite a technical question. I don't <laughs> know, but you mentioned there was, you know, I think four or five pito tubes. Is, is that correct? Yeah, there's uh, four. Four. So what happens if, are you saying that all four have to uh, agree? I mean, what happens if three of them give the same reading and one of them gives a different reading? Yeah, uh, that's, uh, I thought that's what you were going to ask. <laughs> um, there can, there is a, a margin for, you know, for uh, error, but it's very, very small with that. If the airspeed indication isn't, is off by, let's say, 50 feet or so, then they'll kind of, you know, they'll, they'll make note of it, but, you know, it, it's not something that they can be, that they'll be like, wow, you know, well, this is, it's, it's tragic. Mm-hmm. But uh, if it's off by like a hundred feet or more, 200 feet, mm-hmm. then it's something to be concerned about because then it's like, which one is the right one? Mm-hmm. You know, so, but they have, um, but they, they, they do have the, alternate indications there in the in the displays to kind of compare and contrast if you have three that are the same and then one is off mm. then it's it's a pretty reasonable to say that okay maybe that's the that's the one that's not that's the faulty one yeah yeah that's not right yeah right. these are all okay but this one is um doubtful mm. then yeah because you you know what you expect to see and then if you see something different than what you expect, then you're like, okay, that's what's that's up. the one. That's what's wrong. So you, you spoke about a built-in margin of error, but is it ever possible, at least theoretically, to have the four pitot tubes reading exactly the same airspeed? And be wrong? or No, no, and, and be right. So, you know, or is that just basically yeah. not possible because yeah. of the built-in margin of error in the accuracy of these pitot tubes? No, usually when they test them and calibrate them, they're pretty spot on. Maybe a difference of a few, a, a few uh, inches or feet, but yeah, they're usually very precise. Wow, I mean that's that is a fraction of a fraction of a percentage point because you know if we consider that the aircraft is flying at say six hundred miles per hour and you're talking mm-hmm. about you know twenty feet, I mean you know as a percentage that's just infinitesimally small, isn't it? So that's quite incredible in terms of the. Uh, of the accuracy there. But I mean, really, I mean, that's just one event that I've picked on, but it does strike me how your job really is a very responsible job because one mistake, just one mistake can literally mean hundreds of lives gone, you know, in a moment, just like that. You know, does, does that ever keep you up at night? You know, like lying there, you know, two in the morning thinking, hang on a second, did did I tighten that bolt correctly? (laughs) I mean, does that ever have a serious no? Because I know what I'm like. I'd be like, goodness me, there's 300 people up in the sky traveling at 600 yeah. miles an hour over the ocean. And I can't remember if I fitted that bolt correctly. Yeah, no, that's, that, that, that is a very frightening, uh, scenario. And, uh, there's been times when thankfully not, not at home, but I would finish up a job and, you know, uh, usually working night shift and all that you get, you know, you can, there's a lot of uh, margin for error there, you mm. know, uh, um, mistakes can easily be made, especially when you're exhausted and just tired and just want to get the job done so you can go, go home and sleep, eh? go get some rest or <laughs> right, do right. something, you know? Yeah. But fortunately, the, uh, I haven't had any experience where something I did caused a malfunction or something to go wrong. And thankfully no, no crashes so far, but um, yeah, there have been occasions where I will finish a job and the airplane will still be out there in the gate Mm. or out in the hangar. And it'll be a couple hours later and I'll, you know, kind of just be talking to the guys and, and then I'll, I remember I'm like, yeah, and I'll be going over the job, especially, especially if it was like a particularly challenging job mm. task, then we'll be going over it. And then I'll, and then I'll have a slight doubt. I'm like, wait, did I, 
Yeah, that must be do this step. Yeah, and when that happens, I usually just drop everything, go out to the aircraft, give it, and even if I have to open up a panel with four thousand screws, I'll just go out there and check on the system and Mm. on the installation again, Mm. just to make sure that everything has is okay, secured is it's fastened and it's correct Mm. and then i'll get somebody else to come give me a a second pair of eyes so that i i know that it's that it was that it's right yeah that's been made good well that is very nice to know um that you know there's people in the industry as as conscientious as as you are uh, jeffrey because you know people listening to this who are already maybe nervous flyers will, will definitely appreciate you know your hard work just another question, actually, because you mentioned that no planes uh, have have gone down or whatever after you've worked on them. Do you know any people? I'm assuming the answer to this is yes, but maybe I'm wrong. But do you have any work colleagues who uh, personally you've spoken to who, for example, did a, a, mainten- a regular maintenance and then basically that same plane went out and basically didn't come back? Fortunately, no, I don't have I don't know anybody. OK, yeah. Because I, I, I can imagine the, the emotional toll, if that happened, would be quite mm. big. Because even if you haven't done anything wrong, you know, you could start thinking, hang on a second, did I do this? Did I do that? You know, you'd be crossing all the paths back in your mind uh, because essentially, you know, hundreds of people could have died. You know, families, maybe even entire families and young children, yeah. and, you know, newly married people. It's, and it's, it's terrifying, really. Right, yeah. No, it's uh, it, the... I, even though I've never personally gone through it, I can imagine just the emotional and psychological toll it must take on, on a person knowing that that happened to them. And that's why I kind of do my job the way I do it. You know, Uh, I'm always, I always follow the maintenance manual. Never. uh, If there's an easier way to do it than on the maintenance manual, I'll do it according to the maintenance manual, but conscientious of the, uh, let's say alternate way of doing it, but I always kind of tend to stick to what the manual says because they, the engineers who wrote that, know what they're talking about. Yeah, yeah. No, so that's... I, I never try to circumvent. Yeah. No, exactly. shortcuts can be costly. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's not like when when there's a mistake. Usually, let's be honest. Usually, when there's a plane crash, it's uh, <laughs> it's it's pretty bad, you know, because by definition, if you're if you're traveling in 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 midair. And there's a crash. It's 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 not going to be good news. Although I think statistically, most accidents happen either on takeoff or landing. So you know, maybe there's a, a chance that there could be some survivors. Yeah. But it's 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 not very good. You know, it's funny actually. On yeah. that note, I, th- I think the statistics are quite interesting because air travel to allay the the fears of nervous flyers. I know that they always say, well, you know, you've all probably come here in a car, and you know, car driving is you know several times. Uh, more dangerous than uh, than air travel, you know, per passenger mile travelled, which of course is true. But with a car crash, you know, there's a chance that you can get out of that wreckage and and, and walk, right? But generally speaking, yes. okay, granted, there might be far less incidents with aircraft, but when there are, they're generally far far more catastrophic. Let's be honest. Right? Yeah, because aircraft, you know, they don't crash often, but when they do, you hear about it. Right. You know, it's a big deal because, hey, it's not supposed to do that. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so when it happens, it's, it's, it, everybody's kind of just in shock because they're like, wait, I thought it was supposed to be safe. Right. <laughs> but the thing is that, you know, sometimes things happen that are just out of every anybody's control. Yeah. You know, uh, a lot of times uh, there might be a, a computer goes bad all of a sudden and you know, and it's nobody's fault. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there's a defect in the uh, uh, manufacturing process or in the airframe itself, you know, that, that would have gotten noticed at the next inspection, but it just, it developed in between, you know, so that that's when, it's a shame to say, but it's all usually uh, after the fact that things get fixed. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You mentioned that the procedures get fixed. Yeah. You mentioned earlier about um, redundant systems in an aircraft. Could you give us uh, a couple of examples of what some of those built in redundancies could be? Oh boy. Yeah. Um, there's a lot. Uh, you have your autopilot systems 
and there's not just one autopilot or two autopilots, it's three systems, and they each control the same thing. And also hydraulic systems um, are redundant. There's three hydraulic systems in the smaller aircraft, like the twin engine aircraft. They all have three hydraulic systems, and uh, one of them is for is a, a backup for everything else. And uh, the four engine airplanes tend to have four hydraulic systems. Wow. Uh, so yeah, and each system controls something different. Uh, like a couple of systems will control the same things, but their um, the connections and the the plumbing and all that is different. So they're independent systems, and some systems control. Like for example, on the six sevens, though you have the center and the right hydraulic systems, they control the brakes. And the left hydraulic system has nothing to do with the brakes. Right. And there's several other um, uh, flight controls and things that get controlled by different systems that, that that'll be controlled by one system that another system has nothing to do with. Right. So is and the, that's all built. Mm-hmm. No, I was going to say, so is the idea behind this that the, the, the different systems that operate are operating mutually exclusive from the other? A lot of times, yes, that that happens. But also, you know, if one system fails that controls something, it's it's usually a system that has a backup with the other system, you know, or with another uh, hydraulic system. Let's say, let's say like uh, an aileron or a or a or a flap that'll be controlled by, let's say, the center system. Mm-hmm. It if that center system fails you have either the left or the right system that's hooked into it as well and it'll back it up or you have an electrical input that'll help to move the, for the flap, uh, you know? Right. Right. So, I mean, in your experience, have you ever known of a, of a, a case where multiple redundancies have failed? Because again, the probability of that happening must be supremely low. Uh, do you know of any cases where, you know, that's happened? Yes. Wow. Okay. <laughs> there was there was one uh, man. I forgot the which airline it was, but yeah, years ago there was an A- Airbus A three thirty that had a nicked uh, fuel line. Okay. And uh, it lost all the fuel. <laughs> Goodness me. Yeah. So all the fuel was gone. So you have no electrical from the engines. And you can't start your uh, APU or auxiliary power unit mm-hmm. to provide electrical either. So they had to deploy what 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 we call the RAT. It's called the Ram Air Turbine Turbine, and that provides uh, electrical and uh, and essential essential electrical and essential hydraulics. Uh, so they were pretty much flying by the the skin of their teeth you know goodness me and they managed to land it in uh, i don't i think it was uh saint martin or oh wow one of the caribbean islands yes yeah they managed to land or one of the canary islands i forget which okay but yeah they managed and they barely (laughs) had enough runway to 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 stop the aircraft safely Goodness me. So they were, yeah, they were flying just, they were gliding pretty yeah. much. Yeah, literally gliding with a little bit of uh, uh, redundant electricity from, from the, uh, you said, you called it the RAM? The RAT. The RAT. So what is that? What's RAT. the acronym? The RAT. RAM, R-A-T, RAM Air Turbine. Right. Got it. So that's uh, last case, <laughs> last resort. That's quite literally. Yeah, if you're flying on the RAT, you are... You're you're not in a good you're not in good shape. You're not in good shape. Now, when yeah, it comes to doing your maintenance and you're working against the clock, so because of course, when we all go to the airport, we all know that you know we want to fly at five forty p.m. You know, we're going to take off and then we're going to land at this time. Uh, and you know, people have got 
planes to catch at specific times because they want to get to their other side and, and meet family, friends and, and get on with their life. So if a plane needs to depart at a specific time, which by definition, a lot of them do, how does that sort of factor in to your maintenance? Because doesn't that add sort of a further dimension of stress to you guys? Yes. Yeah, it can be stressful, but, uh, you know, especially if you have a manager or somebody breathing down your neck saying, come on, we got to get this out now, you know, it, 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 it makes it stressful, but that's when you have to kind of have your own, uh, set of standards. You know, if, if it's a system that can easily be fixed or it can easily be deferred, then you opt for the, uh, the path of least resistance, right? So you just, if it's, um, if it's something simple that you can call the maintenance control and say, Hey, this is wrong. I need to defer this, uh, to get the flight out on time though. Yeah. The, if it's it's deferrable, then you can go ahead and defer it, get the airplane out because it, it, it can fly without. Sometimes there's uh, um, operational penalties for the pilots, but, you know, you're just trying to make this, just trying to get the plane out of here safely so that it can get to a place where it can get uh, that, take, that problem yeah. taken care of. Now, if it's a bigger issue, that's when you have to kind of have a backbone and no matter what anybody, any manager or supervisor, anybody's saying, you have to say, no, this aircraft is not leaving today. Yeah. So or if you can get me. Line. Yeah. Because there's been instances where I've had to ground an, air, an aircraft because it just wasn't safe to to fly with that problem that it had. It wasn't safe to fly. It just, it wasn't going to go. So that, could so, there be times when you, you could actually be in a... <laughs> essentially a battle of the wills where you as the the technician know hey this plane is not safe to fly but your superior is kind of putting pressure on you from a financial uh, perspective to get that plane in the sky and you have to say hey no 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 i'm not signing this thing off this is not safe to fly yeah yeah there's there you could very easily be find yourself in that situation but usually it's not the your supervisor who's putting the pressure on it's the people above him you know yeah. So he's under that pressure, and then in return, he applies it to you. Um, mm. Applies it to you. But one usually, in my experience, once you explain, once you bring up safety, they kind of tend to be a little more willing to listen to what you got to say. Of course, because yeah, and so, so they should. Times, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, if it was their so family on times. that flight, they'd, they'd, they'd be happy that, you know, the guy on the floor was uh, saying, no, that's not going to fly yet because it's not safe. Exactly. And now that you bring that up, that's uh, that's one of the uh, lessons they teach us in, in, uh, in school, saying, okay, this plane, would you put your family on it? Would you let your mom or dad or wife, children, would you let them fly on this plane as is? right now that's powerful that's, that's something powerful. you got to ask yourself yeah i'm like wow yeah i like because i mean if, yeah so i'm like every time i get every time i have had to face that situation i think wow uh what if it was me and were my parents flying on this plane could i let it go or would i be comfortable mm-hmm. you know flying it like that so fortunately it hasn't been too many times maybe like three at the most, if, if I remember correctly, yeah. where I've been faced with that situation. And fortunately it's just been, I was able to say, Hey, look, it's not safe because this, 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 and that, and there's no relief in the, uh, um, minimum equipment list for it. We can't, the plane just can't go. It's not safe mm. until we get either that part or we, or we figure something out sure. to make it safe. Yeah. So, and once they hear that, they they kind of they've been like, okay, well, let, let's see what we can do about it to get it fixed. Yeah, and they'll start, you know, sending the message up the chain saying, hey, you know, aircraft's not safe. We need to find an alter- alternative. Let's uh, we got to cancel this flight or postpone it, mm. delay it. You know. Mm. So, yeah, but it's been very few times that I've had to do that. 
Well, it's, it's, a, it's a very good moral compass to have. And I think, I, I know I'm very happy to hear that. And I'm sure the audience is as well to know that when it actually comes to it, you know, the workers on the ground are willing to, to stand up for what they know to be correct. Um, and and yeah. that they're taught, you know, hey, would you put your family on this plane? And and by thinking in those terms, the, the humanity is preserved. Um, and that's, that's good to know. It, that sort of segues nicely into sort of my next question about repairs, because if repairs need to be done i've, I've heard that they're organized into categories of urgency uh groups like you know like abcd for example could you explain just a little bit about that sure yeah uh, like if there's a discrepancy uh, usually if a pilot writes something up um you take a look at the discrepancy and you say okay well let me see how much time do i have usually you have uh if it's if it's on a through flight or something you have uh, maybe an hour or two to fix it or find out what you're going to do about it. Uh, so you take a look at it and then you try to troubleshoot it as best you can, given the uh, time constraint. So, because you want to leave yourself enough time to be able to talk to the uh, maintenance operations and, uh, and to finish the paperwork and everything and sign off the airplane before it gets time before they're even boarding the aircraft for the next flight so if you have if the schedule says two hours you maybe have an hour right. <laughs> to figure it out yeah, yeah not a lot of time at all so yeah so if you decide to defer an item or place it on mel uh then if it's a maintenance control will tell you what category it is they'll say okay it's category a usually have between one to three days or the aircraft has one to three days to get fixed. Uh, a category B is usually around five, seven days. Category C is um, 10 days and category D is uh, anywhere from 30 to 120 days. And then when you get into like category E, you have maybe a year or something like that. Wow. Some outrageous amount of time to, yeah. Yeah, just to get it fixed. It's interesting to know that you can actually have then a, a problem with a plane that you know uh, about, but it, it's so um, it, the, the urgency is so minimal that it can actually safely fly for, like you said, several months without being checked again. That's that's quite interesting, right? Yeah, and like usually that's that kind of stuff is usually like interior things, like right. something. Oh, the 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 entertainment isn't working on a certain seat. <laughs> yeah, right. that's not important. That's not critical to flight. Let's. Of send course. it off. Of course. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it'll be uh, something that's wrong with an engine. It'll have uh, some kind of uh, a component that's messed up or or a hydraulic system will be, you know, uh, faulty, a pump or something. And you can sign it off. Uh, it, it'll be a higher category, you know, of urgency, but... Uh, you know, you still like it has a it has a redundancy for it, so you can fly without it. Yeah, even uh, flight control can have an actuator uh, faulting. Hmm. You, you just lock out that actuator, and the other actuator will do it fine, and it will kick in and be fine. Yeah, that's interesting stuff. Yeah, really, really interesting. Well, thanks for explaining that. Um, another question as well. Obviously, when when people these days think about travel, you know, I hate using this word, but it is the dreaded COVID which is affecting so much of the world and especially the travel industry. How has your industry been affected uh, due to COVID? I mean, is your job title still secure uh, and and in high demand? Yes, uh, to an extent. Yeah, you're always going to need somebody to fix the airplane, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But I have noticed that uh, COVID has really affected air traffic, even uh, ground traffic at the airport because now before COVID, I remember I would be driving from, from the Amazon operation back to the shop. And we sometimes we take the access road and we, it would come up behind the, by the terminals and you would see Southwest airplanes, spirit airplanes, just pushing back, coming in, depart coming going just left and right you have to stop several times to make sure aircraft could get in and out 
so you're not obstructing them. And it was just a lot of traffic all the time at the airport where I work. And it, now after COVID, it's it is it's like a it's a ghost town. You know, you have now it's gotten a little bit busier since some places started to kind of ease up. But uh, last year, man, it was it was it made me sad to see how how dead it was at mm. the airport. Mm. How, how much, how little traffic. I was like, man, this is this is a big deal. Yeah, that's depressing. But uh, yeah, and I've heard you know there's been companies that laid off a bunch of people, like American Airlines. Uh, I think United laid off a bunch of people because of COVID, because uh, the international flights weren't, you know, are, are they're pretty much canceled all the way through. And uh, yeah, so it has, it has taken its toll, but uh, not, it hasn't been such a huge impact like a lot, a lot of other industries. Right. And that's, that's quite surprising, but also good news because some, some people think, you know, that the, the travel industry has been hit the worst, but it's, it's good to know from the inside, um, you know, that it's still surviving because obviously myself and many other people who love to travel really want yeah. to know that, you know, <laughs> after this pandemic is, is, is kind of put out, so to speak, or gets under control that, you know, that they can get back to doing the thing that they love, which is, which is traveling, you know? Um, yeah. And that's, that's good to know. I've got one final question for you, uh, Jeffrey. Given the knowledge that you have uh, as an aircraft technician, what is it like when it comes to your turn uh, to being a passenger? <laughs> Does the fact that you know so many things make you more or less nervous? You know, <laughs> it's uh, mixed emotions there. Because, uh, yeah, but like I've, fl- I've actually flown on aircraft that I've worked on. Really? And like, yeah, there's been, I remember one time I was going to Minneapolis, Minnesota for training and I worked the night before, you know, and I serviced, you know, worked on that aircraft. And then the next morning I had to get on a flight to go to Minneapolis. And when I saw the aircraft, I was like, oh man, that's the one. (laughs) Like That's the one I just did this big job on. Yeah. And, uh, but I was, you know, I was like, Okay. Yeah. At least I know it's safe. You know. Yeah. That's that's coming back to like the, the moral compass that you're taught, isn't it? Like, would you put your family on it? Would you put yourself on it? I mean, yeah. it's good that you, you know, you you applied that uh, because obviously, yeah. in your case, you actually flew on the plane that you you maintained yourself. Right. Yeah. So that in in that instance, I was like, oh yeah, you know, it, it's fine. And even when I fly on other airlines, I'm just like, all the sounds that you hear. And all that, I'm like, okay, that's this. Okay, that's that. That you know, I like I know what the aircraft is doing all the time. Mm. So I'm like, okay, yeah, that's normal, that's normal, that's normal. I haven't had an instance where I'm like, wait, that's not normal. <laughs> but <laughs> Yeah, that would be really scary. But I know. Well, there was one time when I was flying from Orlando back up to, to Maryland and we were on the runway, getting ready to take off. And the air engines powered up and you just hear, and then all of a sudden I hear the engines power down. I was like, or, you know, spool down. And I was like, wait a minute, that ain't right. And I, uh, and I thought, well, there must be something with the weather because it was, it was raining. And I was like, yeah, it must've been something with the weather. So we taxied back around and lined up for the aircraft and the captain said, uh, yeah, sorry for that. You know, we had a indication of a crosswind or wind shear indication and I think I was like, yep, there you go. They got a crosswind in the, on the runway. So they had to stop and go back, try it again. And then we took off normally after that. So even when stuff isn't normal, I'm still kind of like, well, there's gotta be an explanation for that. Yeah. 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 And I, I don't know if you've seen that one picture of a meme or where there's a, like a mechanic, he's, he's putting like what looks like duct tape, over the engine. I don't think I have, but I'm, I'm definitely going to check it out after this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Like a lot of people get freaked out by that. But that, cause they're like, is that what's holding separately together? Duct tape. And it, in actuality, it is a t- 
type of tape, but it's not duct tape. It's a hot, what's what we call a high speed tape that is uh, for small repairs, temporary, like things like that, just to hold uh, like the fiberglass together or like delamination to prevent delamination where you can put it on. That is a legitimate uh, legal repair or temporary repair, Mm. you know, just for that, because that tape will not come off. Interesting. Even so that, at high speeds. So that comes again down to the categories of urgency, isn't it? Like A, B, C, D, and where you think, yep, that suffices for that for, for the moment. Yeah, yeah, and it's actually in in the maintenance man who said apply high speed tape, you know, to the to the area and secure it, make sure it doesn't go anywhere. So it's like okay, so that that actually is a a good repair or a temporary repair, and it's just to get the aircraft out into the next station. So. <laughs> So okay. yeah, a lot of people get freaked out by that, but uh, it, if I see that out the window, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> okay, whereas other people could just be like, what the heck is going on? <laughs> My, the, the wings are held yeah. on by tape. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, and I've had to actually like explain some things to uh, people sitting next to me. They're like, wait, what's going on? So I'm like, no, no, this is just this and that and this and that. And they're like, oh, okay, so what do you say? I'm like, how do you know all this? I'm like, oh, I'm a mechanic. <laughs> Yeah, that, that must make them feel like, oh, okay. a lot more, you know, calm. If if you're sitting next to, um, I suppose it's like maybe having some weird pains or, I don't know, maybe you're coming down with something and you happen to be sitting next to a doctor and, and he or she yeah. is like, oh, don't worry about it. It's probably this or that. You know, it, it would put you at ease. And, and uh, in the same way, you know, um, it's right, nice yeah, to know that you've exactly. been able to put other passengers at ease on some of the flights that, that you've been on. But uh, no, yeah. it's, it's been fantastic. Jeffrey, it's, it's been an absolute privilege to, to have you on. I mean, it's, it's been awesome. It's been very um, informative. Uh, and thank you so much for sharing your knowledge, often technical, uh, with us in such a, a generous way. Thank you. Oh, yeah, no problem. It's my pleasure. It's been, I've had a blast. It's been, never had the opportunity to get so in depth with it. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, my guest today was Jeffrey Linares from Maryland, USA. Hopefully, the hidden world of aircraft maintenance has now allayed any fears that you've had of flying. And maybe it's answered some of the burning questions that you've always had. I'm sure we've all learned a lot from that really informed discussion. Next time you fly, rest assured we have experts like Jeffrey taking care of our planes and our skies if you've enjoyed today's episode please do share with a family member or friend who you think would get something out of it my name is nate ralph and you've been listening to the inquisitive tourists